the book of Ephesians, and we are in our fifth sermon, and it's entitled Gospel for the Whole World. First, I want to tell you about fall of 2001. I was in my sixth year as youth pastor at Saanich Baptist Church in Victoria, and I had a friend in Vancouver, and he organized this amazing trip for four of us. We were all youth pastors, and uh, we got to go to Dallas, Texas to this Youth National uh, Youth Specialties Convention. It was amazing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of youth pastors and youth workers from all over North America. Pretty cool experience. And the conference ran Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but we didn't fly out till Monday. So we had Sunday in Dallas, Texas. And so my buddy Jason and I decided, you know what? We're in the South, dude. We got to go to the most happening African-American church we can find. And uh, here's a picture of my buddy Jason. This is two summers ago. We were out kayaking in Ladysmith Harbor. Uh, So rewind the clock to 2001. Here we are, two white boys. And we we figure out, uh, we looked up on the net, where Oak Cliff Bible Church, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And so that's the church of Reverend Dr. Tony Evans. And uh, he's on TV, he's got uh, radio shows, all that kind of stuff. So the two of us head out to this amazing African-American church. And it was one of the first times in my life where I realized, oh, this is what it's like to be the minority. The, the two of us walk in, and if you've ever been to an African-American congregation, especially in the Deep South, they, are, they love to dress up for church. And the guys have hats on and rings and, and necklaces and sport coats, and everyone's just dressed right up. The women in fancy dresses, lots of bling. And there's Jason and I in like our 2000-era cocky pants and a dress shirt. And we, we just stood out so much. But the people were amazing. They just welcomed us in, and they're like, hey, white boys, are you lost? We're like, no, no. Said so we're actually Canadians. We're down here. We're just we wanted to pee with God's people down here. Oh, welcome! And they made room for us. And they're like, make room for the white boys. <laughs> and uh, they just kind of welcomed us in. And the the service got going. And the music, obviously, kind of black gospel. And they had some solos and different cool things. And then uh, finally, Reverend Doctor Tony Evans gets up to preach. And it turns out he's doing a series on marriage. And so. This particular week, he's talking to the men. And so he would be going along in a sermon, and he would make this really challenging point to the men. And then all the black ladies in the church would be like, uh-huh, you, you tell them, pastor. And then they would go along a little bit, and he'd make another point, and like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yes, yes. Amen to that, Dr. Tony. And Jason and I are just like, we're just loving this experience so much. And it happened about four or five times, and they're just calling out stuff from the audience and everything. And finally, he just leans over the pulpit and goes, now, ladies, don't get all happy with yourselves, because I'm talking to you next week. (laughs) And all the men just start clapping. Oh, It was a pretty amazing experience, but it left a profound impression on me, both of the great necessity and of the great joy of Christians gathering together across racial and ethnic lines. And I think it says something really, really vital and important to our world. 
Well, the Apostle Paul went on his own journey with regards to racial and ethnic diversity as the Church of Jesus Christ was being founded all over the Roman Empire. Our passage today is Ephesians chapter 3, verses will be on the screen. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open it. You go to the three-quarter mark, start going to the back, and you will find Ephesians. So Ephesians 3, 1 through 8, and I have asked Dan Horton to read the scripture for me. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to you by, made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly uh, written. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. You'll notice some interesting things in those verses. Paul talks about a bunch of different things, and they relate to his life. So I've entitled this first point, Paul's Story. He talks about the mystery of Christ in verse 4, and then in verse 6, he defines what exactly that mystery is. He says, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together, one body, shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And that right there is both the blueprint and the basis for every local church congregation around the world being racially diverse. And Paul goes on to make some really interesting statements. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So what exactly is Paul referring to there? Was there a time in his life when he experienced God's overwhelming power? Then Paul says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. What is he talking about? Does he have a confidence problem? Does he feel guilty over things in his past? And then he finally wraps it up and says, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. So Paul knows with laser focus what his role and job is. He is to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world? All good questions, and they're actually answered in one amazing chapter in the Bible, Acts chapter 9. And Dan's going to read these verses for us. It's going to give us a peek into the, the defining moment in the Apostle Paul's life. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked... He asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether, they, uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So, uh, so they led him by, hand, by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and, the, and to the people of Israel. I will show you how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What a transformation. He goes from Saul, the persecutor of the early church, to Paul, the apostle, the greatest apostle that brought the message of the gospel to the rest of the world. On that road to Damascus, Saul was struck down, the blinding brilliance, seeing Jesus in all of his glory. And it caused Paul to do an absolute 180 degree change. And he became the foremost champion of the, of the name of Jesus in the Roman Empire. And he really did go from Saul the well-meaning but off-track Jewish zealot to the apostle to the non-Jewish world. He really changed his mindset. He went from, we are the small, persecuted Jewish minority to maintain our faithfulness to the one true God. We need to shun the outside world and the culture to the realization of that profound mystery that through the gospel, the Gentile are heirs together with Israel members together, one body, shares together in the promise of Christ. What a radical transformation. And you know, to some degree, each and every follower of Jesus, each and every Christian around the world needs to go through a little taste of that transformation. Following Jesus means by necessity that we lose our prejudice, our racism, our fear of the world and culture, 
and become missionaries like the Apostle Paul, open to seeing how Jesus speaks to people and reaches them, even in the midst of the brokenness and moral decay of their own culture. Jesus is creating a beautiful thing in the church as long as you and I don't stand in the way of his work. Well, from that incredible challenge, Paul takes us deeper. At first reading, these next two verses are a bit confusing, but I'm confident we can work through them this morning. Dan, read us verses 9 and 10. And, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for uh, which for ages past was hidden, was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There was a pastor in the, the state of Florida, which gets a lot of uh, hurricanes, and uh, it was his brand new first Sunday on the job. And they introduced him, Pastor Reverend Andrew Jensen and his family, to the congregation. They did that in the service. And at the exact same time, there'd been a massive hurricane in another part of Florida. And so this church was raising money to help uh, the victims of this hurricane. And so kind of the two events coincided, raising money for the hurricane and Pastor Andrew's very first day. And so the church secretary was working on the bulletin. And she did really well on page one and really well on page three, but she forgot to put in page two. So when people arrived at church that morning, this is what they read. Welcome to the Reverend Andrew Jensen and his family. The worst disaster to hit the area this century. (laughs) The full extent of the tragedy is not yet known. (laughs) Now sometimes... Little things like, oops, I forgot to print page two of the bulletin, can have bigger effects. And that's what we kind of see in these two verses. And in order to fully understand these two verses, we have to ask and then answer some tough questions. Uh, But there's a beautiful payoff at the end. So, first question. Paul keeps talking about the mystery and then creation. So how do those two things work together? Then Paul mentions the manifold wisdom of God. What in the world is the manifold wisdom of God? Is that another way to kind of refer to what he's just talked about? God's whole plan of salvation? Or does he mean something different? Third question. He mentions the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What are we talking about? Is that kind of angels or or maybe archangels, the really amazing ones that seem to be kind of even over top of the regular angels? The book of Revelation mentions 24 elders falling down before the throne of God. Is, Is that what he's talking about? Or if we got it all wrong, is it Satan and his demonic forces? Is Are those the rulers in the heavenly realms? And finally... How does the church proclaim to whoever these rulers are in the heavenly realm, what role does the church have in proclaiming to them? That seems really odd. All right, so did some research, need to give credit where credit's due. man named Frank Thielman, I'm relying on his uh, excellent commentary today. And so we just need to remind ourselves, first of all, of what the mystery is that Paul's talking about. It's the mystery of the good news of Jesus, his work 
on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, his loving example of forgiving the very people putting him to death, rising three days later to conquer sin, death, and evil. And all of that destroyed the divisions, the hostility that keeps people apart along ethnic or racial kind of lines. And once Jesus had done that, it begins to dissolve those walls. Now, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, can put aside their centuries of hurt and division and mistrust and come together in Jesus. And as the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years has spread around the world, it has done exactly that. It's had the ability to unite followers from Azerbaijan to America, from Botswana to Brazil, from Canada to Chile. goes on around the world, Finland and France, Turkey and Thailand. Sin and human folly have messed that up at many points in history. But overall, it's a growing reality. You know, if Chinese Christians walked into Ocean View Community Church this morning, they're undergoing a real new season of persecution in China. And if they walked in here this morning, even though we couldn't speak the same language, we would throw a party and we would celebrate their amazing courage and faithfulness to Christ despite their persecution. Amazing what the death of Christ 2,000 years ago, the effect it has produced in churches around the world. So that's the mystery. And then Paul tells us the mystery was kept hidden in God who created all things. Well, that phrase really kind of harkens back to chapter 1 of Ephesians where we saw that right from the foundation of the world, before God started creating light and atoms and planets and gravity and, and plants and animals and continents and oceans, God had a plan. He chose us in Him to be in Christ prior to the world's creation. So Paul is partly getting at that, and he's also saying God had a plan to create something brand new. Once Christ was risen from the dead, once Christ kind of gave that mission to Paul and the rest of the apostles and his followers, he said, I want you to establish my body, the church, on earth. And Paul really refers to the church as the new creation. Now, it was pretty small when Paul started. He went all around the Roman Empire planting these small churches. Paul would be absolutely amazed today to know that in a far-off place like China, there's over 100 million Christian believers. Incredible. All right, so that's what the tie-in with creation is. Then we come to this idea, the manifold wisdom of God. That's not a word we use a lot. Manifold. Maybe when we talk about an exhaust manifold. Takes all the exhaust from the different pistons, puts it into one pipe, and out through your exhaust system. Well, that's a little bit... Oh, thank you, Katrina. Yes, she wanted to let you know that I'm going to tell you a Greek word. Oh, I think I should give her a... Never mind. Never mind. All right, so that word manifold wisdom comes from the Greek word polypoikolos, and it means many-colored or diversified. In ancient Greek, they found writings where it refers to a huge bouquet of flowers that all had different colors and, and looks and textures. So Paul is saying that God's wisdom takes a million different factors into account, from the flow of world history to its effect 
on individual people. And just like an exhaust manifold takes all that exhaust from different cylinders, God takes all of these factors into account, but He still accomplishes His will, His purpose in our world. What's His will? To redeem and restore this fallen and broken world and all of the people back to Himself. You know, you and I struggle to run our own lives day to day. Imagine the complexity for God of running the universe. It's the manifold wisdom of God. Then Paul uses this term rulers and authorities. And actually in the book of Ephesians, it's always in reference to evil spiritual beings who exercise power over an unbelieving world. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 2.1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All right, now we see that this is Satan and his demonic forces. And then we come to our last question. How does the church somehow proclaim to those demonic forces? Well, this is where it all comes together. When the church, the people of this local church, millions of other local churches around the world live out the effects of the good news of the gospel... When that unites followers of Jesus from all ethnic backgrounds around the world, that proclaims the manifold wisdom of God directly in the face of Satan and his demonic forces. I don't know about you, but for me, that was a brand new thought this week. I had never considered the role of the church in that spiritual realm doing something that was so offensive to Satan and his demonic followers. Incredible. That means that when congregations, even in our small, stuttering way, bring together Jew and Gentile, indigenous people, white people, Asian people, African people, you know what it does? We proclaim the manifold wisdom of God in the spiritual realm. Incredible thought. Small things that end up having a big effect. Kind of like leaving page two out of the bulletin on your pastor's first day. Well, the Apostle Paul has taken us into some surprising ground. And now, to end it all, we're giving a really inspiring promise. Dan's going to read our final verses for us, 11 through 13. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are, are your glory. That we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It's a very simple point, but it's an extremely profound truth. Because of what Christ has done for us in his work on the cross, his work in creating a church that brings all races together. His example and love that truly offer the great hope for the human race. It's because of what Christ has done that you and I, we don't have to cower before God. When we come to God in prayer, we don't have to 
kind of think, okay, God, I'm really sorry, I messed up. I'm just, I'm just a dirty, rotten, horrible sinner. Jesus says, if you have put your full trust and faith in me as your Lord and Savior, if you've asked for my forgiveness, you can walk into the very throne room of God, the center of the universe, with your head held high, with total peace, total confidence in Christ. You know, that is such an amazing truth. I have talked to hundreds, literally hundreds of Christians over 25 years of working in church ministry. And that is not their attitude. They feel so weighed down by their past. They feel burdened by it. And part of what we need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to say, you are not weighed down by your past, by your mistakes, by your sin. Once you have given it to Christ, they are gone. You are free. Live in that freedom. In 1838, the slaves in Jamaica received the proclamation of freedom. And in order to celebrate all those Jamaican slaves, they made a coffin out of mahogany wood. And into that coffin, they invited the crowd to come forward and put all the symbols of their slavery and oppression. Some people put whips in that they had been whipped with, the irons that held their hands and legs, coarse, awful shirts, frocks and shirts they were forced to wear, handcuffs in some places. They placed everything into these coffins. And they nailed the lid of the coffin down shut tight. And at the stroke of midnight, as they celebrated, they lowered that coffin into its grave. And thousands and thousands of people celebrated their freedom. And you know what that crowd did? They all joined hands and they sang the doxology. And that is such a beautiful picture of the Christian's buried past and our joy, our freedom. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. May God give us the grace to continue to become that kind of church. Amen? Ian, come and pray for us.